Heavenly Father, we do come and ask you for help. We do come and ask you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would take note of our weakness, that you would forgive us of our sin, uh, that you would uh, note that we are in need of you and that uh, we would be reminded this morning that we need a Saviour and point us to your Son, especially we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when, uh, at uh, Smithfield, we, we've been going through 1 Corinthians, and as we've been going through 1 Corinthians, we got to 1 Corinthians 15, and when we got to this text, um, I preached twice on the text. Once I thought I'd preach uh, just as if it was normally viewed through its context and following the flow of Paul's argument. But, but the second time I preached in a, in a topical way, and that's what you're all going to get today, if that's okay, uh, because... I felt it was worthwhile just looking at how different Jesus is to anyone else. And there's no one like Jesus at all. And so uh, I, we came to it. And interestingly, that week in the press, uh, Raf sent me an email. He had no idea I was preaching on this at all. And he sent me an email about the BBC's report on the 21st of June. And, and they reported that in Berlin... In Berlin, they decided to make religious history as they brought Muslims and Jews and Christians to join hands to build one place where they can all worship together. Uh, they called this place the House of One. And they, they said it'll be a synagogue and a church and a mosque all under the one roof. Uh, the architect is a guy called Wilfried Coyne. And he says, what's interesting is that when you go back a long time, they share, meaning these three religions share, a lot of similar architectural typologies. They're not so different, Coyne says. He says, it's not necessary, for instance, for a mosque to have a minaret. It's only a possibility, but not a necessity. And a church doesn't need to have a tower. This is about going back to the origins of these faiths when they were close uh, and they also shared a lot architecturally. Uh, the Protestant parish priest, uh, the title says it all, uh, was uh, interviewed and, and he, when he was interviewed he said this, under one roof we'll have one synagogue, one mosque, one church. We want to use these rooms for our own traditions and prayers and together we want to use the room in the middle for dialogue and discussion and also for people without faith. The, the feeling today is that all religions are the same. Uh, really there's a general good about every religion and it'll, they'll all take you to the same place. Uh, there's no real difference in the architecture if you go back in history. And, and so if you go back far enough and the architecture is not so different... If you go back, perhaps there was a time when there was this one big group hug and, and we came together and there was no differences in our thinking. There was no differences in our uh, beliefs about what God is and who God is and, and how he saves a people for himself. You know, as Christians, we actually do wish this is true. We, we'd love everyone to be one with us. We would love everyone to go to heaven. We really don't want anybody to go to hell. We just have a slight problem with the sentiment, though, because of who Jesus is and what he has actually said. And so 
we're going to look at these few verses in 1 Corinthians uh, 15. And as we look at these verses in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see there's no one like Jesus at all. He, he's so different to everyone else. And there's no religious leader like him. There's no religion like Christianity or the gospel. Uh, and there's nothing like it. Uh, and we're going to find it in these few verses. And the first point, uh, by the way, I printed notes and I brought notes. Well, I didn't bring them, but I, I printed them and they're sitting in a bag. I can even picture them in my mind right now. They're just in my office. They're not here. So I apologize for that. And it was good to see in your bulletin the, the back if you do what you can. But uh, if anyone wants the notes, I'll send them to you. So, so the first point is there is no one like Jesus. And I thought we'd just compare Jesus to the most followed religious leaders. And, and the two today are Buddhism and Islam, aren't they? And so for a small change, what we're going to do is just look at these two people, Buddha and Muhammad first. Uh, firstly, Buddha. Um, Myanmar or Burma is considered to be the home of Buddhism. And there's a shrine there and a shrine that houses relics of a guy called Siddhartha Gautama. And he's known as Buddha and the founder of the religion. He lived from 563 BC to 483 BC. But if you actually want to find a biography of Buddha himself, it was only written in the 2nd century AD. So it tells us when you look at it that he was born to a wealthy family. He lived in the foothills of the Himalayas, which is in Nepal. And it tells us that he had a father who loved him and protected him, and protected him so much that he wanted to shield him from every form of suffering and every form of pain that might exist in society. But, but he was a sensitive boy, and so he would notice every time he would see any sorrows or any suffering. And he enjoyed a good bringing, upbringing, really, because he lived in a palace, and he enjoyed the best things that money could buy, he got married to a beautiful woman and he had one son. Um, and his concern, though, for suffering so overwhelmed him that he decided to leave his family and he left his family and he decided to go after and understand suffering firsthand so he could actually alleviate, make it easier for people who are suffering. And so he commences this journey, he shaves his head, he wears uh, really an orange robe, and, which is really to dress like a beggar, and wanders the streets and wanders the villages uh, like a beggar. A and he, he decides to deny himself all the physical pleasures that he had, uh, and all his needs he even um, uh, stays away from, and he's reduced to skin and bones. And whilst meditating uh, under a tree, uh, this frail, skinny and dehydrated man uh, receives enlightenment and he comes to understand something of man's problem and something of suffering. And he says the main reason for sufferings and problems of this world is cravings or desires. And he taught that the enlightened way or, or the way to peace is really to stop these desires, to put an end to them and put an end to our cravings. And, and this resulted in more dehydration for him and more starvation to the point that he nearly, well, he fainted at one time and he had to be resuscitated. And once again through meditation he discovered the middle way. 
Uh, and the middle way is not in self-indulgence or sensuousness. It's not in uh, asceticism or, or total self-denial. It's that middle path. And he found this middle way. And in it he says, you've got to have a grasp of truth or wisdom. You've also got to have some morality, which means it's got to affect your speech and your actions. And so it should result in good works. And then there should be effort in meditation. And if you bring this combination of three things uh, into full existence in your life, you'll reach nirvana. Buddha died at the age of 80. Uh, he was poisoned, we're told in this biography, and he was poisoned when he was eating a mushroom. And um, it was obviously the wrong mushroom, and, and he died. And uh, his main writings were kept in the memory of his followers. Uh, and um, they were only written 400 years after his death. Now, Muhammad. Muhammad was born in Mecca. He was born in 571 AD, so one about 500 years before Jesus, one 500 years after Jesus. He was orphaned from an early age. He, looked out, he was looked after by relatives, and his relatives would travel a lot, and he would uh, really get a chance to see quite a bit of the Middle East. And it's rumored that he even might have met Christians as they traveled north uh, from Mecca. But at the age of 25, he marries a 40-year-old woman, who's uh, very wealthy, and so he also gets the opportunity to um, spend time uh, retreating, uh, often into the hills to meditate. Um, at the age of 40, he receives a revelation, and the revelation is to denounce paganism, denounce this idea of many gods, and, and to preach that there's only one God, and this one God is Allah. Uh, in the early years, he did not have many followers. He had his wife and a few friends. And um, in 622 AD, they decided to leave uh, Mecca and they decided to go to Medina. And they set up home in Medina and, um, and over there, tradespeople would often pass through these caravans with uh, goods that would be taken to be traded from one town to another. And what he would do is he would attack them and he would actually take their goods and often he would take the people as well and they would build up the group to be a bigger and bigger group. Uh, second thing he did, he harassed every single Jew in Medina out of Medina, and every time Bedouin tribes would come around, he would encourage them to join him and stay with him, and, and they would stick around, and so uh, these tribes, as they stuck, stuck around with him, and they saw some purpose in getting rid of the Jews and bringing this land as their land, uh, grew into a bigger army, and then he decided to go back to Mecca and attack Mecca. And he attacked Mecca and uh, defeated Mecca, established it as his religious center. And once it became the religious center, he abolished all other gods out of uh, Mecca. And, and there was their religious center. He died in 632 AD. And he too was poisoned. Uh, but he was poisoned when they decided to attack a Jewish town. And rumor has it that uh, he was having a meal in a home and one Jewish lady decided to take a little initiative and there was something in the meal that he didn't expect. His teachings were put into writing in 650 AD. He never claimed to be God. Uh, but he did say his teachings came from God. Islam means to surrender to the will of God. And it's a religion that emphasizes success 
and so it's generally missionary-minded and, and quite militantly so. His followers are required to follow five pillars. And the five pillars are fasting. Uh, recently we've had Ramadan. And then there's giving to the poor. Uh, pilgrimage to Mecca once a year or once at least in your lifetime. And prayer five times a day. And then you must make that confession. And the confession is that Muhammad is the true prophet of God and Allah is the only one God. Now we hear a lot about uh, Sharia law. And that is the whole of the Quran, as well as that there's another book which um, is a story of Muhammad's life. It's an account or biography of his life. And when you bring the two together, the two make up what is Sharia law. So you have the law itself and you follow his example. Muhammad was never certain about whether he would get to heaven or whether anybody could know for sure if they would get to heaven. Uh, but he did say you needed more good works. And you needed less bad works. And so if you got to, I suspect, 51% good and uh, the obviously 49% bad, you would probably be accepted by Allah. You yourself would not know in this earth whether you're accepted or not, but, but God would know and you'd find out in the end. In these few verses in 1 Corinthians 15, it stands out so clearly that Jesus is nothing like these two men or any other religious leader. There's no one like Jesus. Look, look at verse 3 onwards. Let, let me read what Paul says. He says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. In, the, in this chapter he starts off by telling the Corinthians, here's a challenge for you. It's only about thirty to forty odd years after Jesus, but... Here's your challenge. There are so many people still alive out there who saw Jesus rise from the dead. Go and speak to them yourself. Go and interrogate them yourself and see what they have to say. Just do not take my word alone. And he makes a startling claim that they should interrogate him about. They said interrogate the people to find out that in fact Jesus did die. He, he was buried that he rose up and he rose from the dead. Now, even though Jesus was mutilated and tortured for six hours, even though he was proven dead and buried, even though he was in the tomb for three days, he miraculously came out at the end of it and walked away. And Paul provides the Corinthians what could sound like only 500 witnesses, but it's really 600 to 1,000 witnesses because he mentions no women and no children at all. And he's giving them so many witnesses and he says, go and find out for yourself that in fact Jesus did rise again. There's no one like him. No one that has risen again. And no one that provides so short a time from the actual event so many witnesses that you can go and actually ask the question of them. Uh, let me read verses 5 to 8 again. I mean, it's a startling claim. 
let us just read them. That he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. It's such a simple challenge, isn't it? And all they had to do was go and speak to him. In verses 30 and 33, if we carried on studying, he actually makes the claim that he's willing to die, and others were willing to die for holding to this truth. And his point is, why would someone be willing to die if this was not true? Why would they actually hold to it if there was nothing to gain from it at all? But Paul says something more that's amazing. He says, all of this did not just happen without warning. It was actually predicted in the Old Testament. It was predicted and written down and it was actually promised beforehand. Verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then verse 4 he says it again. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. These were not things invented by Paul. These were not things that Paul went under some tree in Jerusalem somewhere and sat around and meditated and then came up with the idea that I need to tell you the story that I've made up about Jesus. This was something that was prophesied before time and was witnessed by over a thousand people. And the Bible in the Old Testament shows that at least 61 prophecies about Jesus, if not more. There are some really simple ones like, you know, he was born of a woman. Well, we were all born of a woman, weren't we? And some say, it was, one says he was born, uh, in, he will be born in Bethlehem. And there are many people born in Bethlehem. But, but when you take all 61 together, and you bring them all together, and you say, which one person fulfills all 61? There's no one. It's just Jesus. You could possibly say some of them might be true of Kennedy, or some of them might be true of Gandhi, but it would only be one or two. But when you bring all 61 together, only Jesus and Jesus alone fulfills them in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. So, so some of them would say things like, he's a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's a descendant of David. Um, one said that Herod will kill all the male children. That's in Jeremiah. His name will be called Emmanuel, Isaiah 7. He, he will do miracles and speak in parables. Uh, that, that's also in Isaiah 35. He will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9. He will rise again, Psalm 16. He, he will be betrayed by a friend and sold for 30 coins. His garments will be divided up and cast as lots, and lots will be cast for them. Darkness will fall in the middle of the day. His, he'd be buried with the rich, we read earlier in our Bible reading in Isaiah 53. In fact, even when Jesus was alive, he himself predicted his own death and resurrection in Luke 18. But not only was this death and resurrection predicted in the Old Testament, we're told there was a purpose. Amazing news. 
Paul tells the Corinthians there's a purpose for Jesus' death. He died for their sins, he tells them. He tells them, in fact, a more amazing thing. Paul says he died for his sins. That Paul himself needed someone to die for his sins. Uh, Jesus, when he died, died for a definite purpose. It was not an accidental eating of mushrooms. It was not a poisoning by some act which was just a sad event, really, which resulted in death. He died on the cross, which was a brutal and efficient and effective, if you like, killing group, which was the Roman soldiers, who came and killed him in front of a crowd. And non-Bible and non-Christian historians, Tacitus and Josephus, actually write and record truth about Jesus' death. And Paul tells them that he took this punishment for the sins that they had committed and for the sins that he had committed. They deserved to die. They deserved to be buried. But instead Jesus, Jesus instead died, was buried and then rose again. And there's no one like that. There is no one that had such a purpose in their death. And he says it so clearly in verse 3. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. So the first point is there's no one like Jesus. The second point we get out of these few verses is that we can only be saved by Jesus alone. In verse 1, Paul tells the Corinthians good news, doesn't he? He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. And then notice verse 2. By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And when Paul is speaking about being saved, he's talking about believers here, isn't he? And he's saying believers are being saved from sin. And he's speaking about being saved from the power of sin. He's talking about the fact that we no, need, no longer need to continue in our sin because the salvation that Jesus brings actually saves us from our sin. He, he removes from us our wayward heart, he removes from us our stubborn heart, and he puts a new, tender and submissive heart in us. The salvation he also is speaking of is salvation from the guilt of sin, isn't it? Because when Jesus forgives our sin, the whole sin record, every single record of every sin we've committed has been wiped. It's been totally removed. It's been totally forgotten. We will bring it up over and over in our heads. We will constantly meditate about our old sins over and over again. We cannot forget other people's sins, especially if they've sinned against us, but God is nothing like that. God wonderfully casts our sins to a place that it's totally out of reach and it's totally forgotten. And the salvation he's speaking about is the salvation from the consequence of sin as well, isn't it? Because it's, he's talking about being saved from death and being saved from the pains of death. And this is the consequence of sin because now if our sinful heart has been removed, if our sinful record has been totally wiped, he can say in verse 55, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? In one act of dying, 
in one act of dying and being buried and being raised from the dead, Jesus defeated sin, he defeated Satan, and he defeated death. See, Buddha didn't even understand sin, really, did he? He focused on trying to end our cravings. In Buddha's worldview, there was no need even for an existence of God. There was no judgment. There was no life after death. There was only a focus on how we can reduce suffering in this life. How we could have enlightenment or nirvana or peace in this life. He never considered the problem of sin or death. And Muhammad was part right when he said there's only one God, but he could not guarantee any peace with God. Islam may mean peace, but, but Islam provides no offer or no guarantee of peace with God. The best Islam offers is work hard and hope for the best. But Jesus, when he spoke, he spoke quite differently. Let, let me just give you three or four things of what Jesus said. Look, look at John 14, 6-7. And Jesus says this. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he says something like even more astounding in verse 7. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen him. Jesus would say other things. He'd say, I'm like manna, like bread coming down from heaven. And if you eat of me, you will have eternal life. Not you may, you will have eternal life. He says, I'm the light of the world. And he says, you will not walk in darkness if you follow me. But rather, you will have the light of life. And you know the Pharisees, they're always trying to find fault with Jesus. They're always at him. They're always trying to pick something with him. And at one time, he's trying to explain to them how he was the sent one, the Messiah. And he uses their language. He says, Abraham, your forefather. Abraham actually rejoiced to see my day. Well, the Pharisees are shocked. They say, hang on a minute. Abraham was thousands of years ago. And you're not that old, you're barely 30. So what are you talking about? And Jesus in John 8.58 responds in this way. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This, with all the many other things he said, Jesus was not only claiming to be the one sent to save sinners, he was actually claiming to be God. He was claiming to be God himself. And so C.S. Lewis, you know, when he comes to conversion, he reads the New Testament and he comes back and he says something like this. He says, if you read everything about Jesus' life, if you read everything about what Jesus taught, you can only really come to three conclusions. Either Jesus is a liar, either he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. He is God himself. You can't just say he's a nice guy. You can't just say he's an interesting teacher. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah, the sent one, the Christ. He claimed to be the one who came to save the lost. He claimed to be the one who gives eternal life. He claimed to be the one and only way to God.
either Jesus said who he was, either Jesus was who he said he was, or he was a total imposter and a fraud. You know, at the end of Paul's life, uh, he's been brought for trial. And he's, he's been causing, if you like, a lack of peace or trouble in uh, Rome. And so he's brought to King Agrippa. And he's got to defend himself before King Agrippa. And he says to King Agrippa, I was commissioned by Jesus. And once I was commissioned by Jesus, I went around all of your empire. And I went everywhere and I started telling everyone that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the Christ sent from God. And I told everybody and all the different peoples that, that they need to repent and turn to God. They need to repent and prove their repentance by a changed life, he tells uh, King Agrippa. A and he says that he went to every place which includes Corinth. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says to them, the gospel which I preach to you, you heard. And you didn't just hear, you received it. He says, not only did you receive it, you stood in it. You walked in it. You believed it. You took it upon yourself. And you repented and you turned and you walked in the way of, of Jesus. You followed him. You turned to him. And he says, I'm warning you too to hold fast to this gospel and keep on and press on with this gospel and believe the fact that Jesus is God. He's the one that died and in fact he rose again from the dead. And he's God's Messiah who came and died for your sins. And he says, continue in it. This proves true faith really. And there was no doubt in Paul's mind that Jesus saves all who believe in him. There was no doubt in Paul's mind that he was the only way to the Father and, and through faith in Christ alone is someone saved. And then the third thing Paul, point, point Paul makes is that we only can become believers in Jesus by God's grace and God's grace alone. And, and it's, it's a strange thing really, isn't it, for human beings to think this way. Because it's a strange thing even when someone is preaching. You'll find some people listening and saying, this is exactly the truth. It's the most profound thing. It's wonderful. I love hearing the gospel. And then for others, they can hear exactly the same message and it's just blah, blah, blah. It's just noises out of the pulpit from some bloke who had nothing else to do on a Sunday. And for Paul, he was a bloke who was studied in the Old Testament. He was a smart bloke because he got to go to one of the top schools in Jerusalem. He was a bloke who was religious, who tried to do the good thing and tried to be pleasing to God. He tried to be pleasing to his fellow man as well. And in his hometown, he was well known to be a religious leader. He was well known to be someone who loved the law and loved the Old Testament and studied the Old Testament. And with all this knowledge, with all this training, with all this study, when Paul heard about, heard about Jesus first, it was just blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah. It was nothing. In fact, it was worse than that. When he heard about Jesus, he thought Jesus was an enemy of God. When he heard about Jesus and his followers, he thought they were all enemies of God. In fact, he thought they were enemies of God's ways as well and they really need to be exterminated. It, it was like a Jewish version of a jihad, wasn't it? 
In verse 9, he tells you exactly what he was. Verse 9, he says, speaks of his beginnings. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul got up every morning, he tried to find Christians, and when he found them, he got them to give up Christianity, if possible. And he did not want them to stand in the faith. He did not want them to hold fast to Jesus. And if they did hold fast, if they rejected his pressure, if they stood up to him, he arranged to somehow have them out of the way. And most probably it was killed by the Roman emperor. Paul tells them, though, whilst he was a persecutor, whilst he was an enemy of the church, a change came upon him. God broke in and changed him. This persecutor of the church changed from being a persecutor of the church to being the hardest working servant in the church of God. And I suspect he's referring to the book of Acts, isn't he? Uh, he's speaking about his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, where Jesus came to him and overpowered him totally. And, and all his training, all his religiosity, all his dedication and all his education came to nothing. He was humbled instead. He was subdued in his pride. And Paul, was still an enemy of Jesus, God freely came to him and saved him and turned him around. And Paul puts it this way. Having said he's a persecutor of the church, in verse 10 he starts off by saying, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And grace, I'm sure in this church most of you know, it's goodwill, isn't it? It's favour. It's not speaking about something I did that deserves goodwill for me. It's speaking about someone who shows me favour and shows me love even though I did nothing. Even though there was no reason in me at all, they still showed me love and favour. And Paul tells the Corinthians that because of God's free love and God's free grace, he was changed. He was changed from being a persecutor to becoming a servant. And he says it's not really anything to do with him by saying that, isn't it? It had nothing to do with any decision he made or any great change that he brought about by his own strength. It was a change that God made in him. He repented and he turned from his old life. He turned to God, but it was God who worked in him. Now, in Buddhism or in Islam, you have to do something. You have to do something if you're going to either be at peace or be right with God. You have to make a journey to Mecca. You have to do some good deeds. You have to make an effort in meditation or in something. But this is not how you become a Christian at all. Uh, the Bible says that God must do a work in us. The Bible says that God has done a work in Jesus already. Uh, and the Bible says to become a Christian... God has to make the change. That none of us are born Christians. We're actually born in sin. Uh, we're born opposing God. And we're born dead in our sins, Paul told the Ephesians. And we became Christians because of God's great mercy. He makes us alive, Paul tells us. And then he would say in verses 8 and 9 in, in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, God needs to do a work in us 
if we're going to see how unique Jesus is. It's not that believing in Jesus is some sort of mental adjustment or little change in our thinking. That, that's not what believing in Jesus is. It's not just some head knowledge that we add to all the other knowledge that we already have in our brain as well. It's not even a small diet or a small adjustment in our bad speech or a small adjustment in our drinking habits or something like that and then we become a Christian. It's not even a cover-up or a make-up effort that hides all the secret sin and filth that exists inside us. It's a massive change. It's a radical change. It's a radical U-turn. It results in rejecting everything of our old and sinful lives and our love of sin. And it's a turning to God, and in the turning to God, God works in us to do that. And he produces a changed life that is fitting with repentance. And so Paul could describe his life this way in verses 9 and 10. Let me read them again. He said, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul was the most vicious enemy of Christianity, and he says he became the hardest working servant in the kingdom. And he says it wasn't him. It was by the grace of God that that happened. And I trust this is each one of our experience this morning. I, I trust this is true of each one of us. Because if it's not, I can only encourage you to call on Jesus. To call on God. And to, to seek Him and turn to Him and call on Him for help. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you uh, for pointing us to Him. And we thank you that uh, you have provided for us a Saviour that we so greatly need. Uh, we do pray that you would be with us this morning and we pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts if we have already put our trust in him and encourage us and grant us thankful and rejoicing hearts this morning. And, and for those who might be unsure or those who have not put their trust in you, we pray and ask that you would work that you would by your spirit work, that we might be all those who have put our trust in the only way to the Father. And we do ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.